Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Has the news got you unsettled and worried? Feeling uncomfortable with the absolute state of things? Well, one way to help that unnerving feeling of discomfort is by heading over to British-Boxers.com where they do knockout undies and nightwear and you'll be as snug as a bug in some very nice pants as you swear in despair at the television. Not only do British boxers have luxurious two-fold cotton on all of their clothes, but they're also a lovely ethical bunch who respect workers' rights, manufacture all their stuff with minimal waste, and, I mean, actually, they're almost too nice a bunch. It's ridiculous. Hasn't anyone dug up any dirt on them? Have they ever returned a library book back late or something? Wow, no, not even... Oh my goodness. Well, if you grab great garments from BritishBoxers.com, then use the code PARPOLBRO15 at the checkout and you'll get a swanky 15% off whatever you buy, which will hopefully make you feel less sad that you're just not as good as them. Sorry, I'm just projecting now. BritishBoxers.com. They must have once done swears at someone's pocket. No, not even that. Bonkers. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that gets it and has listened. I mean, not to any of you, just to itself a few times, and I fully understand why many of you skip bits, but I'm still leaving them in. I'm Tina Duyebin this week as Chancellor and when did Domo Kun get glasses, quasi Kwarteng, U turns on his policy of cutting the 45p tax rate, calling it a distraction from their plan to get Britain moving. That must be true as now it's gone, the government is spinning on their heels while the country is going rapidly backwards. You may have noticed the evening is getting darker earlier, the chills are setting in, and on the calendar it's clear that it's now the time when ghouls, monsters and denizens of the underworld gather to discuss what horrible torments they'll unleash amongst the living. Yes, it's the Conservative Conference 2022, and while it's usually listed somewhere beneath the ancient Aztec day of flaying as worst reasons to gather people together, I have to give credit to the Tories. They have worked hard to make this year a must-see event. The Prime Minister and Elmer Fudd with hair, Liz Truss, has gone above and beyond to make the prospect of her speech a recommended viewing ever since she started. I mean, who else would have thought that as PR, you could kill the Queen, crash the economy to the point the Bank of England had to bail themselves out, and then you turn on a policy you'd spent the day before saying you were 100% behind? Might we see celebrities taking note that maybe when they've had a film or a TV show that looks like a total flop or is actively hated by everyone, 
they could do a truss and disappear for four days before resurfacing to do eight car crash interviews on local radio stations, each one sounding more and more like they're running out of batteries or unravelling like a broken cassette. What else could set the stage for such a big, important speech like knowing every single one she's done so far has had all the energy of a depressed hairdryer while the opposition are so high in the polls it looks like the Conservative Party might finally join the dinosaurs they're most closely descended from? Get that popcorn ready. That's what I'm saying. Get that popcorn ready for Wednesday as I couldn't be more excited than if they'd said Hugh Jackman would be returning as Wolverine to do a panel voicing his view on the necessity of cuts. I'm aware that some of you will listen to this podcast after Liz Truss's conference speech and there is, of course, every chance she'll just have talked like a broken printer without any awareness of what she said or did five minutes before. Not only ruining things for humans, but also selfishly taking jobs from goldfish who are happily owning an idiom about memory until the Prime Minister took it for herself. Just hours before the U-turn on the scrapping the 45p tax rate policy, Liz Truss was insisting across national television that she was 100% committed to the idea and that it was necessary to grow the pie. How do you grow a pie? Does she have a magic pie tree? In a time where people are struggling to afford food, I mean, why hasn't she made more of this? Perhaps we could all take a crumb from it and plant one to get our own sustainable pie supplies. It is very possible that this is how Liz Truss thinks pies happen, much like seemingly thinking solar panels grow on farms, possibly from sunflower seeds. I am 100% committed to the idea that were you to dig up the garden at number 10 right now, it'd be full of buried Greggs that some poor aide has had to shovel in there at the whim of Truss's fevered notions. Actually, I joke, there's absolutely no way any Conservative would go anywhere near Greggs. It is, Liz Truss says, all about giving taxpayers value for money. So is she mainly cutting taxes because we've got such a low-quality knock-off prime minister and government? It had only been days before that that the International Monetary Fund had condemned the mini-budget, so-called because it had had all logic removed. The IMF apparently usually only intervene with less white countries in the hope they can keep them in debt forever like a more fancy wonga, so this was a very big deal. Then the Bank of England spent £65 billion on the bond market, otherwise, I don't know, there won't be any more films after No Time to Die or something. But essentially, a lot of money we didn't have was spent bailing ourselves out from a self-inflicted wound. The mini-budget was making a hole in the boat in the belief it would go faster, and then as a result, the Bank of England had to use other bits of the boat to fill that hole in so that we didn't sink, and now we don't really have enough of a boat to go anywhere, but the captain is still insisting that more holes are the best way to keep moving. Yet none of these quite major and unprecedented financial events could budge Liz Truss from thinking she had anything other than brilliant policy. The Prime Minister is someone who, if she was following a sat-nav route and it told her to go straight into a tree, she'd insist there was no deviation from the plan as it had to be right and she'd just keep ploughing ahead until either the tree gave in or a brunch punctured her brain. Actually, that that's probably already happened. That would That would explain a lot. The Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng also stood by his plans to do, as many are calling it, a reverse Robin Hood, which not only refers to how he's taking from the poor to give to the rich, but also sounds like a devious sex position which massively rewards yourself, but doesn't give the person you're with any benefits at all. It was revealed that Kwarteng spent the night of the mini-budget partying with the financiers who profited from shorting the pound, which is not only dodgy AF, but also sounds like the very worst party you could go to. I bet you'd have rich wankers offering to buy everyone around, just getting themselves a drink and insisting it would trickle down eventually. Kwarteng said in hindsight it wasn't wise for him to attend, but it was booked in and he was only there for 15 minutes, had a soft drink and left. Gosh, is any Tory capable of going to a party that isn't a work event? It was only after it was clear that other Conservatives might vote against the 45p tax rate cut that the change occurred. 
Drop Dog's dinner, Michael Gove said he would revolt, even though he's constantly revolting already. Chairman of the Conservative Party and incel Gooseberry, Jake Berry, warned anyone who votes against the mini-budget that they would have the whip removed, but still many spoke out saying they would. Rumours circulated that Tory MPs were planning to work with Labour to defeat parts of it, but you know, not all of it, as no one wants those rich donors to struggle too much. And there you go, a U-turn appears like magic. No one wants a humiliating defeat in the Commons because unlike several humiliating interviews, humiliating speeches and humiliating bailouts, this might actually bother the government for all of five minutes until they pretended it hadn't actually happened. Liz Truss was quick to say it was all quasi Quarting's idea and then it was revealed no, actually scrapping the 45p tax rate was the idea of Treasury Minister Chris Philp, who forever looks like someone's been possessed by a spirit that's trying its best to look normal but doesn't understand how faces work. Chris Philp is clearly so stingy that he's sold off a few letters from his surname. We get it and we listen, said Truss and Quarteng, but it wasn't to the many people who said this was the worst idea in the world 10 days ago, or the IMF, or the Bank of England. So it was only really the Tories and the financiers who probably said, yeah, we've earned our money now, so you can change one thing as long as you keep all of the other really, really fucking terrible bits. Quateng had to change his speech for the conference on Monday, but luckily for him, if the 45p tax rate was a distraction, scrapping it was an even bigger one from his policy to remove the cap on bankers' bonuses still being there, and also now his plans to cut £18 billion from public services. Which should, of course, make up for all the tax they've gained from not scrapping the 45p tax rate. No, wait, hang on. No, so, so they'll be getting more tax from rich people, so we have to have more austerity to cover that. No, hang on. Wait, sorry, I'm a bit lost. Is this is this where we find out that Kwarteng actually studied mathematics and only knows how to put a massive hole in everything? Kwarteng's conference speech was mostly the word plan a lot, with the word growth, and sometimes the word serious for about 30 minutes. He also credited the Conservatives for saving the country from decline caused by the previous Labour government 12 years ago, while also saying the country is trapped in decline and this plan would save it, which only makes sense if at some point around 2015, Kwasi Kwarteng joined this dimension from a completely alternate one. It's also pretty Charlie Big Potatoes of him to blame Labour for the crash when just mere days ago he managed that in a morning. Do you think Kwarteng's just having a go at the last Labour government because it took them much longer to crash the economy and they had to go and have help from the entire global financial system? Jeesh, amateurs. The scrapping of the 45p tax rate means that he is still making £43 billion of tax cuts, so it's unlikely it's going to help the economy much. Still though, he does have a plan for growth and a growth plan, and it's a serious, serious plan for growth for a serious government with a plan for growth. And no, not the little bit from 10 days ago, ignore that, it was just a distraction. Yes, a return to austerity is on the cards because no one has any original ideas anymore. Leveling up Secretary and Stephen Colbert's evil doppelganger Simon Clark said Britain has been living in a fool's paradise for too long. I agree, I agree, but do you mean the former Prime Minister, the ones before that, or the current one? What does Clark think levelling up means? Maybe he read his own job title wrong and thought all he has to do is level up one secretary and everyone else can get fucked. Or wait, is it our fault for enjoying austerity so much they just thought they should gift us with it again? Perhaps we really shouldn't have encouraged them by surviving the last lot of austerity, so now Simon Clark thinks what really needs levelling up is the difficulty of living. Obviously not all of us survived austerity at all, but sadly their voices can't be heard now and Tories are only able to be haunted by the thought of anyone who isn't upper class being happy. The other big policy announcement was from traumatised ghost of the Microsoft paperclip and business secretary Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is scrapping all regulation for companies with fewer than 500 staff. Yes, nothing helps business quite like a conveyor belt of employees as they keep getting killed off by unsafe conditions, or having goods absolutely no one wants to buy because they keep exploding in your face. 
Luckily, this government are helping because if you do lose most of your face in a workplace accident, no one will be accountable. So at least now you'll save on having to find legal fees. It's probably because the Conservative Party seem to have no regulations that Mogg feels others should have the same opportunity for corruption. Rhys Mogg's partner in Somerset Capital and Tory donor Dominic Johnson, who looks like, um, no, actually, just go Google him right now. You just go have a look at him. He's not real, is he? He's definitely a character from a horror film. I mean, yeah, it's, oh, uh, it's horrible. I, I can't, I cannot stop seeing those eyes. Jesus, it's horrible. He's been handed a senior ministerial post and a peerage, which seems like a big cronyism sandwich, if you ask me, but it could be that the government are just so surprised someone can get on with Reese Smog without scowling at him that they've hired him as some sort of in-house nanny role. Somehow, all of these things, making people poor so that they die in factory accidents no one is accountable for, will fix the economy. The economy, the Conservatives have made consistently worse since 2010 with very similar policies and then just the other week made even more worse with these exact policies again. Do they believe two wrongs will make a right? Will more austerity plus previous and still ongoing austerity combined with all the money lost straight after the mini-budget or not collected from fraudulent Covid payments or... Wait, sorry, it's a very long equation if I fit it all in. But what I mean is, does all of these many ways that will ultimately make most people in the country have a terrible life equal somehow massive growth? Well, not according to the Institute of Fiscal Studies, the International Monetary Fund, the Bank of England and presumably the Office for Budget Responsibility, but they aren't allowed to say yet. So anyway, what do all of them know, right? What do all of them know? They don't have a magic pie tree, do they? The Conservative Party conference was supposed to unite the party, and while it hasn't happened in terms of the proposed financial policy, it's clear that they're all together on two things, which is being terrifyingly right-wing and making sure they burn everything to the ground in the limited time they have left in charge. Nothing brings people together like knowing they can bask in the warm glow of a country on fire. The conference has been littered with talks and comments that can only be made by people with zero connection to reality and huge disdain for almost every other human being. You'd find more compassionate a Cenobites reunion. Low lights so far and moments you can't believe someone might say till you realise they were at the Conservative conference, so actually it's standard fare, include party chairman Jake Berry saying in response to the cost of living crisis that people can just cut their consumption or get higher wages and better jobs, which weirdly is what people would like to do, but not in the way Berry imagines it could just happen. Berry no doubt cooks a meal by collecting all the right ingredients, then tries to fuck them into a dish and wonders why no one wants to come to dinner. Eddie Munster looks ill, Lee Anderson complained about do-gooders setting up food banks to make themselves feel better and doubled down on his claim that you can make a meal for 30p a day. Maybe he's got a magic pie tree himself, or possibly by just being such a fucking pie he can bite bits off his own face and 30p is the cost of a plaster. While Higher Education Minister Andrea Jenkins, with the perma expression of someone who's just walked into a lamppost, complained about universities and schools teaching things that she doesn't understand before saying that freedom of speech starts at a young age as her son is five and he shouldn't be afraid to say what he thinks. About what? At five? Father Christmas? I assume her son never goes to bed because when she says it's bedtime he says, no it's not, I believe it isn't and she has to go along with it. I'm not expecting him to have a great winter as she believes in when he says he doesn't have to wear his coat. The cracks are still obvious. The cracks are not crackpots, which are, of course, very obvious in the conference, but the cracks in the party are obvious. Not only has there been this resistance to Kwarteng's economic policies, but a number of former bigwigs in the party haven't even shown up to the conference. Former Prime Minister and Stromerlite Boris Johnson is nowhere to be seen, but I guess that is standard for him when it's anything that's considered work. Former Chancellor and what if the Crescent Moon was overconfident, Rishi Sunak, isn't attending either, but I bet he's back to being a US citizen now the dollar is worth way more. 
The live karaoke band that we're meant to play have cancelled too. The Tories blame the train strike, which is happening the day after, but I reckon it's actually because they realised there was no point in them coming when the entire few days will be MPs repeating lines they've been handed and being out of tune with the entire rest of the country. Then there was hard man of the soft play, Steve Baker, who bizarrely apologised to Ireland and the EU for not always behaving in a way they could trust us. What's happened to the real Steve Baker? Has he gone to wherever they stuffed Marc Francois's body and have they replaced him with an imposter? Or is this a rats leaving a sinking ship type chat and Baker just keeps imagining himself doing the ultimate leave of the UK and getting a job on the continent where he encourages people to catch illnesses that he swears aren't real? He did then say that he can't afford the net zero pledge and we all realised, nope, nope, still the same wank as Steve, so stand down everyone. There were also more than a few panels where guests stated just how much the Conservatives aren't going to win the next election by, which is going to be tough for them to hear. But hey, I guess if they all lose their jobs, they can just cut consumption or get a better one, right? Right? In contrast, the Labour conference ended on a high note for the party, or rather the same note again and again as leader and tiki torch that smells of corridors, Keir Starmer, gave a speech that many lauded as brilliant, including usually Conservative commentators. I mean, it wasn't brilliant, but we're in a time where all we have to compare it to is Liz Truss, and frankly, even Starmer's constant advert for Sudafed seems like a BAFTA-winning performance when it's up against hers. He pledged a fresh start for the UK, which I suppose is fair because by the time there's an election in two years, there'll be nothing left to go on and we'll be back to square one. Starmer announced a publicly owned green energy company called Great British Energy, even though United Kindling was right there. I mean, yeah, okay, I suppose Kindling isn't green. You win, Jesus. He pledged more nurses, though not really sure how yet. Uh, Possibly he has a tree for that, like Trust has for pies. And he said he'd make Brexit work, which is great, as it's been shirking for six years now on massive benefits, and it's not even tried to do anything useful. Really not sure how he'd make Brexit work, but I suppose it's how you might taxidermy a dead pet, and that way it's not really dead, is it? It's always there and forever in our hearts. Starmer's little list for working Brexit included a points-based immigration system, so that proves Labour are ready for government as they too have xenophobic, unworkable policies. And they could probably resell off all those excess mugs from 2015. Labour will deliver a change in Scotland, he said, but they won't work with the SNP, so that means there's going to be loads and loads of work for one MP to do all by themselves. And then he quoted Love Child of the Cheshire Cat and Haunted Portrait of a Witchfinder, Tony Blair, and said, Iraq is within 45 minutes of launching weapons of mass destruction. Oh no, sorry, not that quote, it was, it was another one. And something about don't forget, don't forgive, which is a very dangerous thing to do when you've just brought up Tony Blair. Great. All good, right? All good, that speech was, because they're not the Conservatives, and frankly, Starmer could have stood up and said, I'm going to come round each of your houses and insult your potatoes, and I think people still would have been pleased to hear an alternative to Liz Truss. Of course, it'd be better if Labour will actually do any of the things he said, well, except the points-based immigration policy, but, you know, based on his current record, Keir Starmer would get a few months into being Prime Minister and absolutely not bother with any of them. Still, I suppose, again, that makes him perfectly suitable to be in government, doesn't it? Oh, and that green energy company, in the small print, it says it won't be a supplier, just an investment company which will give investment in renewable energy alongside energy companies, so it won't impact on our bills at all and will probably generate loads more dosh for the lot that already have more dosh. Still, though, not this trust, is he? So, woo! In some polls, Labour are 33 points ahead, meaning one hell of a majority if the election was right this very minute and not at all in two years. Even former Conservative MP, and what it might look like if a lab mouse was turned into a human using magic, Nick Bowles, he said he will vote for Labour next time. Which is great, because if a man who advocated for austerity and cutting welfare now says Labour are the party for him, then they must be the change we need from a government who are advocating for austerity and cutting welfare. 
Labour MP Rupa Huck, who looks forever like she's been startled by headlights, was suspended from the party for saying that Kwasi Kwarteng was superficially black. Which is odd, as according to the findings of the Ford report and many people of colour within the party, that's exactly the sort of anti-black racist comment that thrives in Labour, and I'm surprised they didn't promote her. The Green Party also held their conference on the weekend with a call to fund renewables with taxes on wealth and dirty profits. So expect that as a Labour policy in about six months' time, but where neither things are actually taxed, and then a Conservative Party policy in 12 months' time, where neither are taxed, dirty profits are increased, and renewables aren't funded at all. And hundreds of thousands of people protested all over the country on Saturday as part of the Enough is Enough campaign, the No to Oil campaign and the Don't Pay campaign, while RMT workers and communication workers all went on strike. Can't believe they could just cut consumption or get better pay. Ugh, someone should tell them. Hola! How goes it? Um, I'm not going to be long here on this little middle admin bit because it is a long interview on this week's show, but that's nice sometimes, isn't it? You know, who wants to hear me waffle on about how I just had a custard apple and temporarily forgot everything else that was going on because it's fruit, right? But it tastes like custard, so it's good for you, but it tastes like it isn't. I mean, why aren't custard apples mandatory? That's what I'd do if I was in charge. People people never think of that one as one of their policies. Sorry, I really I can't stop thinking about it. It was such a good custard apple. Um, there's also candy floss grapes, you know. It is like we live in a simulation created by Willy Wonka's mind. Um, I was going to do more on the Labour conference this week because uh, there's quite a bit to talk about from that. Loads of things that sounded really good and then you look at them and go, oh, they're not really that good. And yet they're still also better than what we have now, but they're not that much better. But anyway, Liz Truss has fucked things up so much that there wasn't time. Um, so I will try to talk to someone at some point about it, probably. Uh, I went to the Enough is Enough rally in London on Saturday at King's Cross um, and it was brilliant. It was just brilliant. I mean, it was helped by the fact it was a beautiful sunny afternoon. Um, but I just forgot how good it feels to be surrounded by people equally angry at everything. And it just sort of makes you feel all a bit hopeful about it. Like you, you can do something. Um, they say there are about 10,000 people there. And I can't really tell because I'm short. And because uh, I, I didn't really want to count just heads for an hour. But it definitely felt super, super rammed. Um, and I had my agent, sorry, a daughter on my shoulders. And she really enjoyed it as well. It's her first sort of big rally she's ever been to. Uh, and she liked all of it until the last few speakers when she got distracted by a very small bug on a tree that she then had a conversation with. It was really small. Like, it was really, really small. So I, too, was curious, I have to say. Um, I know they held, like, 58, is that right? 58 rallies on Saturday all over the country, the Enough is Enough campaign. And many of them looked absolutely packed based on the photos. So I just totally recommend heading along to future ones. Um even if just to add to the amount of people there and get the really nice feeling that it's not just you shouting at your social media by yourself. Um, it's a pretty exhilarating feeling, actually, and I was really pleased that it went along. It's taken me a while to get the energy to go to these things again um, after the parenting pandemic. General life, uh, but it, it felt good. It felt good to be doing it again. Um, Rob Delaney was absolutely brilliant. It was nice to see him on stage. He did a great speech. Kevin Courtney at the National Education Union was absolutely brilliant. I really enjoyed his speech. And a massive shout to Joe Grady, who was great. Uh, she's the General Secretary of UCU. Um, but she also tried to get everyone to cheer for nationalising Greggs. I was on board, definitely. That is uh, when Liz Trust promises about growing the pie. That is how we should do it. Right, uh, that's it. That's it for this week. Thanks to if you've co-feed, Patreon, all that. I don't think anyone has, but it's nice of you if you did. Um, this week, I had a chat with Beauty Dalimini uh, about health inequality. And as I said, it's a very long chat, but it's a good chat. So I'm going to stop talking to you about tiny bugs at protests. And I'm going to let you get on with this. It might seem strange to say Britain has high health inequality when right now it seems like the whole country is unwell and in dire straits. 
Health inequality isn't when, you know, I'm way fitter than you. Look how many steps I did yesterday. I actually don't. It's embarrassing. It's about how certain conditions from your income, gender, ethnicity and which postcode you're in can have a devastating effect on your health and life expectancy. There is a 9.4 year gap in life expectancy between men living in the most deprived areas of the UK and those who live in the wealthiest areas and a gap of eight years for women, probably boosted by the energy they get from knowing there's even less men around as they all died off first. The coronavirus pandemic was a massive health event and, well, still is if you look round the back of the news to all the bits they can't be bothered to mention. And that exacerbated health inequality not only by being an absolute shit of a virus, but also from the economic damage caused by the government's financial help seemingly based on pulling names from a hat as one of their party drinking games. But now we have another health crisis on top of the one we've still kind of got. Not a pandemic, that is still happening, but the cost of living crisis. And one of the key words in that phrase is living, and it is a ton harder to do if you can't afford to. If enough people are struggling to choose between heating and eating, as journalists like to say, ignoring that many can't do either, it's not likely they're going to be living to 104 and telling their grandkids about how, actually, it turns out Liz Trust did make the economy grow, but only for funeral directors and bailiffs. And that's all going to happen on top of an understaffed, underfunded, overstressed health service where to have any chance of an ambulance arriving in time, it'd be best to book ahead for when you're most likely going to have a terrible accident or your spleen explodes in a couple of months in the future. I still can't believe all those claps didn't fix it. It's so weird. It totally works with fairies. Why would it work with a real hospital system? How bad an effect will these times have on people's health and in what ways? And is the worst place to live Ilford because your postcode starts with ill? I asked all of those questions. Well, not the last one, as actually Ilford's postcode is uh, IG. Uh, I asked all the other ones, though, to Beauty Glamini, who writes about, among other things, health inequality and global health issues for Tribune magazine. Beauty kindly had time to explain to me the pretty bleak landscape of British health for this foreseeable future. And this is a long chat because, um, well, there's a lot to get through. Uh, but I really, really enjoy speaking to Beauty, even if I'm now considering wrapping myself in bubble wrap and only eating vitamins for the near future, just to avoid the absolute chaos uh, that our hospitals are going to be, if they're not already. She gives quite a lot of recommendations at the end of our chat, and I did consider editing that a bit, um, but they're all very good. So if you're rushed for time, I would advise uh, sort of jumping ahead that bit, maybe jumping ahead on the last question, and then go back to it another time with a very hefty notepad. Anyway, have a listen. Here is Beauty. Beauty, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, look, we've got a lot to talk about. I Start at the top, um, which is, this is a big question to start with. We've we've just sort of come out of a pandemic. I have to put sort of, because we haven't. There's still loads of COVID numbers. But let's, for the sake of this question, we'll pretend we've sort of come out of a pandemic. Is the cost of living crisis and now probably even more cuts to the NHS, as we've just heard this weekend, is that the next big threat to British health and how prepared are we for it? Right. Thank you. First of all, great question. Um, I will say to you, like to touch on what you said, I think it's really fair that you've said that we're coming out of a pandemic because it's been presented that way by the media by our politicians etc um and it's kind of like we're really far from that <laughs> we are absolutely not in like the clear from that um and I don't think we can talk about any threats to the NHS without like situating the current factors absolutely like tearing the NHS to pieces right now which happens to be largely because of the pandemic um I think, yes, the cost of living crisis is another threat to the NHS. Um, but when I think about threats, I kind of like to think about, about them more like broadly and like triple threats. So 
and like to not just to the NHS but to British health so I would say like this cost of living crisis absolutely the upcoming flu season which is always kind of like a something in the background that everyone's kind of aware of um and the COVID pandemic and all of like the the onslaughts and actually just quite, something quite um unexpected was the queen's death I know like that sounds absolutely ridiculous but when she died a lot of important um uh operations appointments were cancelled put on hold which which just feels very absurd like okay we understand cool she's dead days of mourning but also like people other people are dying other people have like health needs that they like need to be addressed um which was just a strange one, but more broadly, just triple threats. Um, and I would say, like, all of these, like, crises together proliferate ongoing issues within the NHS, like, staff, like, very high staff turnovers. I used to work in the NHS myself, <laughs> and I've left twice. Um, bed shortages, <laughs> long waiting lists. Um, and I feel like these are all symptomatic of, like, much bigger problems, which, unfortunately are state mandated so for example lack of funding just like the politicized nature of healthcare in this country who gets free healthcare who doesn't who gets free treatment who doesn't um how like most free um treatments are now partially paid for and it's just like oh I wonder how long it will be until we have to fully pay for it um and I feel like if we can't contain a lot of like um, these political agendas affecting it. Um, if we can't, if we can't, like, um, what's the word? Really confront and be honest with how underprepared we are. Um, we and we and this is like our normal in the NHS. This is this is normal right now in the NHS. Then there's no way we can handle it. Like when all these crises are going to happen at once, which is literally now because winter has started. I mean, you say it's, it's normal, but it's, you know, things, how things are now with the ambulance, like, you know, people saying they're stuck in ambulance for 12 hours. That doesn't feel, I mean, th- that feels like it's got even worse in the last six months or already oh, since the pandemic. Absolutely. I agree. It, it has gotten worse, but <laughs> the way that things are spoken about, it's kind of like normalized. So when you see stuff in, in the news, it's very much like ambulance wait is up to five hours, but it's gone down by, last month and it's just like okay but it's still it's it's still a mess and the fact that like we're I feel like the media I just feel like everyone is in on this agenda like to move towards a more privatized system but because we're, we're all like really clutching onto straws people aren't being very honest about actually the reality is like we're fucked. <laughs> I don't know if I can swear. Sorry. You can, you can absolutely swear. And I think it's entirely necessary. Uh, yeah. Subject. It's entirely necessary for most things at the moment, I think. To yeah. Politics. Um, but yeah, I mean, because also some of the things you mentioned, obviously, um, I mean, the, the, the changing appointments for the Queen was just bizarre. Is that what she wanted for other people to possibly die with? It's very weird. But, you know, it's, it's you know, the, the things like pandemic are unavoidably a health issue because they are whether... I'm not going to go into how it was handled. It was handled terribly, but it is a health issue. But there are lots of things with the cost of living crisis that perhaps I don't know people might not see as being a health issue. What um, are your concerns and what what do you think are, are 
going to be effects of cost of living crisis that that are going to impact on health that maybe we're overlooking? Sure. Um. So. I'm so glad you brought it up. I wrote an article for Tribune about this, actually, about very direct and indirect um, ways that the cost of living crisis is affecting people's health. Um, so at the crux is that, of that is forcing people to go without food or water, like point blank. Um, like I said, the article really goes into like, like a few things. For example, energy, like the rising energy costs will put a lot of people into fuel poverty, People won't be able to heat their homes um, to the standard that they need. Like, it's all great, well and good. And it's so weird because, like, the media is, like, <laughs> trying to kind of glamorize or, like, romanticize it. Like, would you have a date in complete darkness? Here are five ways to deal with it. And it's just like, this is absolute madness. I don't know if you saw it. It was, I, I can't remember if it was an article by The Independent or The Guardian. And it was like, can we not do this? Can we not romanticize fuel poverty? Um, yeah, and like a lot of that stuff, like not being able to heat your homes um, to the standard that you need has really negative health outcomes. So like excessive winter deaths, this is something that goes on every single year and it's been going on for years now. And like I said, people just kind of turn a blind eye to it. When I say people, I mean the government, um, circulatory diseases, like respiratory diseases. And the issue with respiratory diseases right now is like, we already have COVID and if someone has like an underlying respiratory disease, their chance of experiencing it in a mild way is far less than like someone who has a more robust immune system, someone who actually has access to heating their homes and stuff. And for example, like I think as well, like something that we'll see much, much later is like how this is going to have an impact on a lot of young people right now, ch children and young people. So, for example, damp and cold homes really stunt their growth, their cognitive um, development. It like increases their risk of like chronic ill health. And then you have food poverty where like we had the whole palaver. Was it last summer or the summer before? I'm sorry, the pandemic has like really meshed my my understanding of time so like I know like <laughs> we're in 2022 but it feels like 2020 2021 was like one year um but yeah like you know there's a whole lot of food insecurity where people can barely eat again in line with the government's own dietary requirements um and the the negative health outcomes are from that is like people having anemia growth um growth issues malnutrition and something else that people aren't realizing is also oral health so in the nhs like we already have people can't find dentists or they can find dentists and they just can't afford them so there's already that crisis of like dental health being incredibly privatized people not being able to afford it the demand um outweighing the actual supply of dentists and then you're telling people okay here's the type of food that is we're telling you is unhealthy or we're constructing as unhealthy it will probably impact you in so many different ways including your teeth but we can't really support you in getting treatment for that so and it's just like what and like I've spoken to most of like the physical health issues that will be direct and indirect as I've said but like there's a much larger health area which I feel like is grossly overlooked and that's mental health so as someone with chronic mm -hmm. ill mental health myself like I know what insecurity does to people so like 
just just waking up that constant anxiety of like what will my day actually look like today how am I going to be able to afford to eat today and I'm just one person I don't have kids um I have like a very quite supportive family and I still feel like that so imagine people who are not in in those in that context people who have um the responsibility of caring for kids or caring for parents people that live in intergenerational homes like how how do you how do you understand the gravity of like the mental health stuff they're going through you know and I think all of this I say all of this is linked to again much wider like social determinants of health so stuff like your income your environment all of these like proliferates it like it, if I can't afford to buy food increasing food prices and fuel prices like fucks me even more if I'm living in an area where like housing isn't that great this just makes it even worse for me do you know what I mean um yeah and I feel like all of these things are just bound to be exasperated by this crisis because well, also you know it feels like that's um on the back of the pandemic which has also caused you know and I say somebody I, I don't sort of suffer from mental health issues but I did I had anxiety for the first time in my life during the pandemic I think because of losing all my work overnight and and the stress of it all these things that I'd never felt before and and I know that they sort of talk about the whole country kind of suffered PTSD we're all kind of going through loss and and grief of some sort yep. from yep. two years of that and then to be hit with this that just feels like it's it's a disaster waiting to I mean if it hasn't already happened it probably has already happened but it feels like it's that's the thing you know that's the thing and I feel like something I really hated like and I hate saying the word coming out of the pandemic let me just say coming out of lockdown I think coming out of lockdown there was this oh we're so resilient oh my god we're making the best out of um a terrible situation and I, I really don't think so I think Maybe perhaps people haven't got to a point where they're confronting some of the issues they went through. I know for certain that there was a lot of repression on my side on a lot of the things happening. It was like, got to keep going, got to keep going. Um, And yes, there were so many, I want to say positive quote unquotes in like a non-ironic way about the about being in lockdown. For example, it just gave me a lot more clarity on what it is I wanted to do with my life it gave me more clarity and understanding that actually I'm not happy with the things that like the things that I've so I've always wanted to like advocate for, for access to help for everyone but I also realized that perhaps certain jobs that I was in weren't really like working towards that and more like a lot of the grassroots work that I was doing etc cetera, etc cetera. but I say all of that to say like I think there's just a real denial on the impact of lockdown and maybe it's delayed as well because it's like we came straight out of lockdown into vaccines oh my god this is amazing into oh we might be in a recession into oh by the way people won't be able to afford to eat or heat their homes but you know we have it undercover into like this political shit show where our prime minister at the time Boris Johnson was being like ousted and refusing to leave and then left and then there was this whole race so like part of me feels like a lot of this is distraction and a lot of it um not deliberately like all of this stuff is just kind of um I don't know how the word what's the English word for it uh uh what's the word um snowballing effect that's it (laughs) it's a snowballing effect where I feel like 
they're little things that might link into much larger things. And because of that, people don't have the time. People don't have the same time they did in the pandemic to react to things and like really sit down and process like, wow, this is going on. And it's so funny because not funny, ha ha, but funny, oh shit, because now we're in a cost of living crisis. People have even less time to really sit down and grapple with these things and, and realize the impact it would have on their mental health because it's like, I need to work, I need money. I need money for myself. I need money for my kids, my family. I need to eat. If I do, even though we're in a cost of living crisis, I don't particularly want to stop enjoying my life because I ha- like any little bit of enjoyment, I, I just want to keep. Um, and when you realize all of this stuff, it feels like a distraction then for people to actually be like, well, okay, this this is really bad. I need to take time from this. This is how this is affecting me. And I think maybe in about five, 10 years from now, when we have a bit more distance, a lot more will come up, not just in studies, but even in like suicide rates, unfortunately, even in stuff like people, big, big people, like from celebrities, um, from um, activists, just being like, I am so fucking tired. And this and this and this is what it did to me. it's just a matter of time. Yeah. Sorry. That was a very like convoluted answer. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Not at all. And also there was a bit of hope in there. Cause you said in five or 10 years time. So at least we've got, we, we might get there, which is, <laughs> that's the optimism we need on this show. Absolutely. In 10 years time, we'll still, we'll still be here. Hopefully. Um, yeah. Thank God for that. I, but I mean, you know, uh, I'm getting to a slightly bleaker question now, unfortunately. Um, yeah. This is the joy of doing a comedy politics podcast. The, the comedy yeah. is completely drowned out by the politics. Um <laughs> I, uh, you know, we're discussing this, the, the mental health issues of, of uh, I, I say everyday people, I use that term very <laughs> generally, Pe- you know, people outside of the NHS. There are people that have been yeah. working in the NHS through a pandemic, now through a cost of yeah. crisis. Um, you yourself, you, you know, you said you used to work for the NHS. Uh, I was on the Enough is Enough uh, rally in, in London yesterday, which was fantastic. Of but course, the, yeah. There was um, a GP uh, that spoke, whose name I can't remember, which is terrible. She was absolutely brilliant. But talking about just how deb- debilitating and, and just tough it is right now. And I know nurses are hopefully possibly planning a strike um you know but but there'll be feedbacks being set up inside hospitals for staff surely this cost of living crisis must be having an absolutely devastating effect on people within the nhs absolutely so like the way i like to think about things is like on specific layers so particularly there will be a personal impact for a lot of healthcare professionals where they themselves are 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 expected to separate their own troubles with the cost of living crisis. So you have to understand that at baseline, these workers are burnt out. They are tired. They don't get paid nearly as you alluded to, nearly enough as they should, not just to live by, um, but to compensate for the risk that they put themselves through every single day. Like I keep reiterating, we are still in a pandemic. And unfortunately, the healthcare system or like the responsibility of that will fall onto healthcare workers, even though it's it's largely not theirs. Um, so for them, like they are battling with so many crises, like within the NHS as workers on top of this themselves. And then from a like collective perspective, it's very hard, like it's very hard for them as individuals to like try and put on this front to try and act like oh everything's fine you know like not just at work but in my personal like everything is fine because I'm telling you a lot of these 
workers are not okay. They are not like I see countless threads from medical students, from doctors, um, support workers, allied health workers, you know, physio physiotherapists, radiographers, just being like, I want to leave the profession. I came into this expecting one thing and it's completely different. Or people saying, I'm moving to Australia, they have better pay there, even the working hours are much less, all of that kind of stuff. And it's just like, if if people who we were expecting to provide these services and we can't even like I'm not saying that other people aren't worth it please don't confuse that I'm just saying if these people particularly they can't even live on the salaries they earn to feed themselves they have to come to um to school sorry to work expecting hoping to to feed themselves in that way and bear in mind like shift work is an absolute mess like shifts in the NHS are about 8 12 14 hour shifts so it's all well and good that I'm able to feed myself but that that might even just be once in the shift and you're not even eating it properly you're eating it on the go um so you're not really like digesting and like having the luxury or the privilege of enjoying your food um which just shows you like the gra- the gravity of the problem right and then on the collective level it's just like when you do speak up on these things in the NHS, there is such resistance. Um, like if you mention like, you know, I don't, I don't particularly think we should be potentially not paying us as well. It's just like, oh my God, in my day, I worked 20 hour shifts and I didn't complain. And it's just like, okay, but there is very different context there. And I do think there is definitely like a generational divide on a collective level um, and I feel like sometimes when people have these conversations, particularly in the healthcare professional, they forget that outside of their profession, they are people and they live amongst people. Um, and because of that, like, <laughs> because of that, it just makes, it makes it even harder. I feel sometimes for these workers to mobilize and do strike action. That's not to say it's not there. I know some brilliant, brilliant, brilliant ex-colleagues and just friends who are just like, I've had enough this year, I'm going to strike. And if I get in trouble, so be it, because I don't think it's fair that I'm working about 40 hours. I'm coming into work, there's food banks, people above like senior management or even the government are acting like they're doing us a favour. Um, and it's like, it's just not on. And this, this, like I keep saying, this is just um, a continuation of what we saw in, in the pandemic. People were being asked to sacrifice large parts of their life. I, I was on the front line at this point. Like, you'd be on shift and someone would ask you, can you stay for six more hours? And it's just like, don't you think I have a life? You know, and like, they would bring in food and be like, oh, but this pizza. And it's like, okay, but I'd, I'd like... I want to go home. <laughs> so there, there's just so many, there's so many layers, like complex layers interacting with each other when you think about NHS staff potentially utilizing food banks um, and then them as professionals and them as people or part of the general public um, and what that potentially means in terms of strike action, in terms of like mobilization to hold people accountable. Like this is actually really not okay. I should be able to work in a profession that you deem is so essential and in high esteem um, and be able to live off it without having to work extra hours, without having to kill myself and break my back. Um, 
and all of those things. Yeah. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah. I know you sort of said, um, you said at the beginning you're not putting people in higher esteem but that we should be though we should be putting like, i genuinely think people in the nhs are saving lives that's the most important yeah. Yeah. job that we have in the country it baffles me that it's not um sort of held in higher regard but but it's interesting as well you say that you know because i i, I you know i can only really talk about myself but i'm i'm knackered all the time and have been now <laughs> i think the pandemic made it worse uh mainly it's being a parent but the idea of mobilizing uh, yesterday was like the first rally i went to in age it's like God, i finally feel i've got the energy to this but if you're on the if you're on shift work like that you the little bit of spare time you have you don't want to then be spent unionizing organizing it's it's hard to get it, it takes energy from people to do that um, absolutely yeah absolutely and like just to just to add to what you're saying like there is like so I've been out of the NHS for a while now but there is definitely like a, a culture of like fear sometimes and secrecy of people of those rebels who are actually like no we should strike no let's unionize no let's and it's so it's so interesting that you say that because maybe because I was much younger or like a younger part of the workforce when I was part of the NHS, but I didn't know what a union was. I didn't know that there were people that were actually in the background that could fight for, um, fight for my rights and stuff like that. And also it's just because like these things aren't widely shared. Like you go into the NHS and no one talks about these things. Um, even like pulling up, even for example, and I say this, like it's, it's just the general culture of working in the NHS. Like even saying, for example, speaking up and being like, actually, I don't agree with this treatment or I don't agree with your over-policing of a certain um, ethnic group or demographic, whatever. 
um, for example, like if young Muslims come into the hospital, um, being so quick to like refer them to prevent, like just stuff like that. Um, um, and it, that really feeds into, for me, that just really shows what they then generally think of their workers. Because if you're not used, the NHS claims they're like very diverse and open to different perspectives and stuff. And to some extent, they really are. Like it's the most diverse workforce I've ever worked with. Um, but if if you're if you're not equipping your workers with the tools to actually be like, actually, we deserve better, then I, I don't particularly think that their interests are the first thing at heart, um, particularly given like the, the 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 amount of work they do, the nature of the work they do. Like a lot of the stuff you see in the NHS is incredibly heavy, particularly in the pandemic, you know, and that, that's essentially I mean, I left for many reasons, but that's essentially why I left, because it was just like people are dying around me and this is normal. How is anyone thinking this is normal? Um, so I was just like, yeah, I'm out. Peace, peace and blessings to all of you, but I'm out. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. How, I honestly don't know how anyone does it at all. And, and um, it's so much respect for the people that are sticking through it, despite all of this. I mean, I, I was going to ask sort of about, you know, health inequality in the UK. Yeah. Um, I often see sort of charts, obviously, you know, the NHS is, it, I mean, it's still one of the best health services in the world, despite everything at the moment. But how how is health inequality compared to, other places how bad is it in, in the country at the moment and what i suppose i wanted to ask is how much is sort of underfunding the nhs to do with that if if we got rid of all the cost living issues which is yeah I mean, you know in an, in an ideal incredible <laughs> ideal world, world. Where suddenly <laughs> tomorrow liz trust fell in a well and never got out yeah you know would you know would that fix things um is is you know or is, is that not enough is it is this a, a combination of everything you know what what needs to be what needs to be done what's the magic solution come up with it right now <laughs> that's a big question so. damn <laughs> you're asking me to be a politician um okay so <laughs> bad, bad health health inequality how bad is it bad like for as long as i've been alive it's been bad for as long as my parents have been alive it's been bad um and i say this because i've studied this like it's essentially like from from the 80s where arguably like they had fewer interventions health interventions they had even maybe less more new like less nuanced understanding of health it's really fucking bad um and i feel like all these little crises like the will, the political will to narrow like um health inequalities not just between within a population but um intra intra-populations for example between the working classes and the middle classes and the upper classes um but for, for example as well um within minoritized communities racialized communities like it, it's really bad um and for people who want to understand it i would like definitely encourage you to read as you said the charts to read all the work by michael marmot he's kind of like he's kind of like uh um the king of this kind of stuff you know and he does he does a report every like I think it's every five to ten years where he's kind of like essentially what the report tells us is that oh things are bad things are really bad here are all the tools I think you can make to get to make it better you probably won't use them but things are really really fucking bad um and this is just in terms of and 
this is just in terms of like he does it in terms of like bigger diseases so like cancers your hivs your cardiovascular diseases and stuff but what i really love about michael marmot's work is that he also points to actually social factors are a, a huge fucking determinant in how um how how good or bad health inequalities are being and it's just like let's just think about this for a second if none of like social factors wider determinants are getting any better how on earth do you expect health to get better like people are learning are learning sorry are earning marginally way less than they they used to like a house in like 1978 it was 40k and like now it's like baseline 1 million you know uh how, how do you expect people's lives to be better, let alone their health? Um, and then you said, to what extent has privatization increased? Oh, my God. Like, that has just completely widened inequalities um, but between the rich and the poor, um, within the working class and like between classes, sorry, class system, um, again, with racialized minorities, marginalized, all of, all of these very... Um, marginalized groups um of course the privatization and underfunding of the nhs because they don't have access to health services they don't know these services exist they can't afford these services um let alone uh let alone understand that actually there is a way for me to 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 fix to fix my health but also i just think part of a much wider part of why health inequalities potentially have like broadened is our understanding of health like there's a very mm. neoliberal agenda like health is your responsibility no one else is what you eat what you put in your body you need to exercise and sleep well and everything will be great and it's just like that's absolute fucking bollocks like I can I can sleep for years and have perfect diet and stuff but guess what because I don't live in a, a particularly amazing area with green space because I live in an area where air pollution is incredibly high unfortunately my life expectancy will still be lower to someone who lives in fucking Kensington or Chelsea or one of them posh places do you know what I mean um so so I I do think that that's underfunding and privatization are generally a large part of it because it's like well people have health issues and there's no solutions to actually address these but also more broadly like how as a nation um how um people in the west understand health compared to like people elsewhere um is very different for example like i know that in a lot of global south countries i hate that term uh, it's just the way we like divide things in 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 like global health or health public health but people people in global south countries for example latin america even african and asian countries really understand the importance of community health and understanding that actually going into communities speaking to them being like oh what are your health needs how do you think it's best to address this okay how can we like help you access that or understand this or get to these communities that you're talking about there's a lot more there's a higher um, validation for those kind of interventions there versus here where like I said health is incredibly individualized it's very much it's your responsibility how dare you get sick that's a burden on us it's a burden on the community and and the wider economy and stuff like that so I really think 
if we also shifted how we thought about health and understanding it as a collective responsibility, that potentially could potentially could largely um, shift a lot of things, including like the need to privatize. I think a lot more people would be like, hang on, if this person's ill, this is something that could happen to me as well. Or if this person can't afford it, like, yeah, I might be in a great job, but we're, we're going into a recession or we are already in one. God forbid I lose my job. How am I going to be able to afford it? And then people mobilize and like strike to, to, to address all of these things and to stop these things happening. I definitely think that perhaps we would see health inequalities reduce significantly. I think those sort of feelings are, it feels like now, as much as, as much as I'm quite a pessimist about everything, it feels like now that those feelings are kind of rising to surface more than they have done in, in quite a long time. Um, and I think, I, I wonder if the pandemic also did that a bit in that there were definitely, yeah. definitely a community spirit uh, to some elements of the pandemic. Um, but I, I wondered, I mean, it, this is a question I've been asking a lot of people lately, simply because I have absolutely no faith in our governmental system, absolutely. system at all, really, <laughs> not in the opposition whatsoever. You know, um, are, are there things that we can do as people to kind of reduce health inequality? Or is this is this down because because so much what happens to the NHS is down to government decisions and and so much what happens to kind of societal well cost of living is is down to government decisions but are there things that we can do as as people outside of obviously protesting and and fighting against it but are there things that you can do for your community for example to to help out I'm so glad you asked that because sometimes I feel like and I feel it myself sometimes and I'd like my whole thing is about health and just working towards better health and access for everyone. But sometimes I watch the news, I read stuff and I just feel incredibly powerless. And I think that is the aim sometimes. Like they very much remind you like we're in charge. We make all these decisions. We can cut your benefits. We can choose to tax you more or not. But actually working in health and like I alluded to in my my answer to previous question, community health should be central to all of this um you know people are starting to realize um the importance and even the impact that community health can have and and like the use of like community assets when i say community assets i'm talking about town halls i'm talking about youth centers well the ones that are left uh i'm talking about um religious groups and stuff one example i can give of this is how all of these were utilized to mobilize the the vaccination program so and like a lot of people adverse to the vaccine for various reasons, you know, and understandable. Um, and other people were kind of like, well, just get the fucking vaccine. Like, and it's just like, actually, there's so many nuances for people to even feel confident enough to get to get it. And I feel like there was such a disconnect with how this was being communicated by the government versus people within the community and trying to understand people and reasoning with them. And again, this is across generations, but when people start going into like places of worship, libraries, that kind of stuff, we we slowly start to see a shift. So there's definitely something like something I want to reiterate is we are not powerless in all of this. Essentially, like we can do something about it. And with enough pressure, I'm so certain that we, we can change that things are. We don't have to accept things as the norm. So, for example, things like mutual aid wholeheartedly believe that um 
things like mutual aid and just understanding that people's healthcare, but more outside of that, people's well-being, people's livelihoods is a collective responsibility. And we should all be feeding into that. Um, we should reject ideas of individualism. We should reject ideas of competition. Basically, the whole idea of neoliberalism is bullshit and people should look out for each other at the crux of that. Um, and I think like you said, in the pandemic, this this was very much coming out alive for people, you know, people volunteering because NHS, NHS workers didn't have PPE. People, we we got loads of donations from like uh, grassroots charities, like people giving us T-shirts, people making like masks for us. And then like when, when we had to revert to scrubs, like people donating materials, being like, we make your scrubs for you, just tell us your measurements and that kind of stuff. And it, for me, that was a moment of hope. It was kind of like a microcosm of like a better reality we could reimagine, which I feel like coming out of the pandemic, going into the cost of living crisis was very quickly squashed and very mm. like capitalism. This is how we do stuff. Rat race, every man for himself, that kind of thing. And it really, it really does need to be that. And it's shown that it doesn't need to be like that. But I do think like, like I said, there's so many things we can do outside of that. Unfortunately, it, I do feel like where we are, it would involve, we can't solely bank on community health and it would unfortunately need some sort of cooperation with the government in terms of funding. And this is the problem though, because once once we are accountable to the government, we essentially have to work to their agendas. No, no matter what we do, um, if they wanna fund us, you know at the end of the year like and that's what happens to a lot of grassroots that do incredible work and then they try and like sustain it with funding at the end of the year they have to write reports on what they did with that money how they did it and the government can very quickly be like mm, yeah we don't like that how dare you choose to feed children we don't want that that's in line with our agenda do you know what I mean and then they squash that they they kind of squash that radicalism if I find a solution <laughs> to understand how um, we can we can bypass a lot of that without government intervention, um, without funding, not just funding at the state level, but just localized. I will let you know. Uh, <laughs> I will let you know. Are you feeling? I mean, I, you know, how how are you feeling about that? As I said, I'm, I'm quite pessimistic, but I've I've really feel I don't know. Like we were talking about the the. It does feel like people are shunning individualism. It does feel like people are yeah. actively um, really pissed off right now, like really more pissed off than I've ever seen people, and, <laughs> you know, which makes me a bit more optimistic. Are, are you feeling optimistic about the the future of kind of health health in the UK or are you still, still not certain? <laughs> I, I always want to feel optimistic. I think hope is very radical in itself because that's something that people like to squash. Um, without sounding like a tree hugger or something, but I really feel like hope is essential because without it, I really think it would it, it would kill us much quicker. I feel like without it, people won't be able to just resist or call out the bullshit that we're seeing. Essentially, without hope, we become very passive in this much wider government agenda, in this much wider shit show that is kind of being imposed on us. Um, I definitely feel op optimistic because I feel like you said you went to the enough it's enough rally these kind of campaigns popping out with very mass mobilization um 
obviously it's very early days so I don't want to speak and be like yeah it's going to change the world like let, let's let's give them a chance to see what happens you know um but I do feel like and I, I feel like because people are organizing around wider determinants of health even like the rise in trade unionism and like their presence and it being felt and in even like in the media I don't ever remember that happening okay maybe because I was a kid I'm quite young but uh, (laughs) but like in my entire like teenage life I've never seen like trade unions have such a presence in the mainstream media and cause such upset so for me it's it's very optimistic to see them like organize around all of these wider determinants which which will ultimately as I said to you earlier on impact health I am still very optimistic though for us to, to to start a health movement so like not away from it like definitely in collaboration organizing with these groups that are about right now but one that generally is just like and I feel I do feel like they are like quite a few in the NHS um sorry um surrounding organizing around saving the NHS literally it's called save our nhs um <laughs> and you know um working with like access people accessing the nhs for example migrants like medac they do some really great work um all of that stuff and i i do feel like they work around health but there isn't kind of like a centralized movement around health which i think if all of these great grassroots um unions came together and just kind of said you know what we need like a people's health movement um then I def I I feel like for me that would that would put my health my my health my (laughs) yes definitely my health but also just my hope a bit higher because then it's like okay we're organizing around wider determinants of health but we're also like organizing around health like stuff like access to health access to treatment um how we understand health whose health matters, all of that stuff. I think for me, having that kind of like centralized, I don't want to say public body, but just movement will really put things into perspective and just um, make people recognize just how important health is, to be honest. Because I don't think people people do. It's that thing of like, you're fine until you're sick and you're just like, oh my God, I wish I took more advantage of breathing normally. Do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> so yeah. Well, um, thanks so much for having time to chat uh, on on the show. And, um, you know, last question, which is what I ask every guest, which is apart from yourself and, and your brilliant writing, who else would you recommend? Um, I know you just mentioned uh, Save NHS, you mentioned, um, was it Medicaid that you mentioned? But yeah. are there any other yeah. writers, sites, organisations that you would suggest that listeners follow and check out for what you think is really solid reporting and information on, on health and health inequality? Yeah, absolutely. So I just want to emphasise that. In, in all the work that I do and continue to do, it doesn't it doesn't happen in silo in silos. I'm heavily influenced by a lot of wonderful people offline and online, and my work would not be possible without their work and the people before them. Um, I want to shout out my podcast if that's okay. Mind the health gap. I do that. <laughs> I do that with my friend Mohammed, and we try and make a lot of health discourse and. Uh, accessible to like people particularly marginalized people I think sometimes when people do reports or research on health they very much do it to people and not with people and that's essentially the gap we're trying to build with our podcast um there is a group called people's health movement which I feel like could be like a coordinating 
kind of like hub or grassroots movement. Um, they do some brilliant work themselves. Med Act, as I mentioned, Medicaid, Race and Health, um, again, which really tries to bring a lot of like racialized, um, a lot of the work to do with like how race, racism, in fact, um, as a wider t- determinant, really impacts our health or like the lack of action around it. There's there's a really good um, tool that's been put up um, by, uh, I can't remember, by the organization. I think it's Central Lab. They basically use like neuroscience and like public health together. And they have this tool called Right to Know where you can literally put in like your postcode and see like how shit the air is in your area, in your house. Like if you have green spaces, why you don't, what you can do about it. Um, um, I don't know if you remember them, um, if you remember the story of the young girl who died as a result of air pollution, I think her name was Ella Roberta, the Ella Roberta Foundation is still very much in its inception, it's been, it's been there for ages, but I definitely feel like more people should pay attention to the work they do, particularly in COVID, where it's literally a respiratory disease and no one's doing anything to challenge how poor our air quality is so they do some really good work um just more broadly though like decolonizing contraception the joint i always forget this one it's jcwi i think it's the joint council for welfare of migrants they do some brilliant work on like migrants and health migrants organize young minds Terence Higgins Trust, which is important, really important right now with the monkeypox crisis. Um, there are, and they they just do some brilliant work on like reducing a lot of um, stigma in terms of like sexual and reproductive um, illness and just our understanding of it. I love the work they do on HIV because even though technically we've been a HIV pandemic now since the 80s and a lot of people forget that and they they just do some brilliant work to address that women's aid migrants organize so I sit on this community board care city community board which is something like I was telling you now like communities can do and on that board we literally speak to people in our community and we're just like so tell us what we can do for your health and they tell us we take it to the exec to the executive board and they they try and action that um but I also want to emphasize that a lot of what we're doing shouldn't just be um, nationalized, but also globalized, because what's happening in one country absolutely affects us, as this pandemic has shown. Like what was happening in um, East Asia at the start of the pandemic certainly impacted us now. The lack of mobilization of what's happening across like certain African countries, certain um, Latin American countries where they're yet to receive vaccine doses, it's going to impact us, it's going to prolong the pandemic, Um, it's going to increase diagnosis of like lung COVID, that kind of stuff. Uh, So like groups like Palestine Action, um, there's so many Latin American groups I can't think of at the top of my head now, trade unions, for example, Unison, they do some really, really good work. And I'll just say like, um, I can't think of any writers right now because a lot of health writers I know are um, American, unfortunately. Like, fortunately, because they're brilliant writers, but unfortunately, because they, their landscape, their political landscape is slightly different for us. I mean, it's just as bad, but slightly different. Um, but yeah, I would say like one of the really good writers who really sticks it to government is Nadine White. 
she's a race correspondent um for the independent and i just love her i love her like she gets so much shit and she's just like yeah i don't care like i came into journalism to keep my my foot on your necks and i'm gonna keep doing that i just love her um but also like wonderful life-changing publications i've written for and read continuously including tribune who I think are largely involved in the Enough is Enough campaign, um, New Socialist, Media Diversified, Jacobin, although Jacobin, mm, mm, yes, they miss it sometimes, but other times they, they get it really right. Um, Left Foot Forward, Logically, who do a lot of work on like misinformation. Um, and one, one, oh my God, one, and books, I love to read. If you can, definitely like get on the books. But one series I will act like I am such a fangirl for them is the Outspoken series of Pluto Press. So they pretty much write on like so, so many things like sexual health, uh, masculinity, trade unions and why we need them. Um, class divides that kind of stuff it's it's very introductory texts but like the concepts they they break down and introduce to people it makes the the gap from oh my god like this government is fucking us over what can i do to burn it down like it makes that that bridge really clear it i just love those books so much and i will always sing about them and i think just like, as I said, other, other wonderful scholars and writers that I've worked with. And I hate this so much because I'm going to forget someone and someone's going to message me like, wow, I feel I feel very slighted right now. But um, Perry um, Blackson is someone that I work with. He's another columnist for Tribune. Um, Raf, Uncle Trash, um, he he put me on this podcast and he's been really good in in. And just speaking about a lot of these things, Rhiannon Osborne, she does, she's someone very new to me, but she does loads of work in, in the um, climate, climate and health space. Uh, Adele Wat Wat Walton, she's, um, again, a brilliant writer, Magic Pie, global health writer. He's based in Canada, but I just love him so much because, yeah, um, Rochelle Burgess, Devi Shridhar, these are all um some of my favorite global health female writers, which is really important to me because in our field, a lot of, and you recognize this even in, in like the NHS, a lot of women like will be on the ground and in the front line, particularly in mental health, but like senior management, they're not really represented, which is another conversation we can have. Uh, um, my friends, my family, my community in East London, where I'm originally from, but now I'm in South London, like, all of these people and I just think people need to exercise and not exercise but really utilize their communities around them and stick together and understand that what's happening to us isn't a collective thing sorry is an individual thing but a collective thing and our responses should therefore be collective Thanks to Beauty for having time to chat. You can find her on Twitter at Beauty Glamini, which is uh, D-H-L-A-M-I-N-I. -I. I do hope I'm saying that right. I checked it with her and she said it was, so we'll see. Um, and many of her articles at Tribune Magazine, which is at tribunemag.co.uk or at Tribune Magazine on Twitter. And Beauty's podcast, as she mentioned, is Mind the Health Gap. And it's been on a bit of a break since last year, but I believe she's about to get it started up again soon. So do subscribe ready for that. Big, big thanks to Raf who put me in touch with Beauty too. 
what else do you need to hear about in current stupid, stupid times? Um, I'm going to try and get someone to talk about uh, Iran in the next few weeks. Probably should talk to someone about the environment again, even though that will be terrible and awful to chat about. Um, but listen, if you've got other ideas, hit me up uh, with your ideas. That is, as I said, and not fists. I'm a podcaster, not a fighter. Uh, and all suggestions for possible chats on this show are very, very welcome. And you can send them to partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. And that's all, folks, for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. If you enjoyed this, I mean, firstly, what's wrong with you? It's at least 50% bleakness every single week. At most, you should laugh, cry your way through. Seriously. Sorry, I mean, if you've enjoyed this, please do share with others who may need this blend of comedy and the absolute opposite of comedy. Give it a swanky five-star review on Apple Podcasts or similar podholes. And if you can, do donate to the ko-fi.com forward slash bro page or join the patreon.com forward slash bro. Talos to Agas, my brother last skeptic and cat day. Uh, this will be back next week when Quasi Kwarteng will announce that he's listened and he gets it, but during an interview it's revealed he just means the last Coldplay album. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Fool's Paradise, an advert by the British Tourism Board. Enjoy everything you need, like choosing between heating or food, here in Britain, the Fool's Paradise. Relax on beaches smelling of poo, take in the sights that haven't been sold off yet, and relax forgetting that everything is on fire around you, but you know what, it doesn't matter, as we grow pies on trees. Come to Britain, island of, uh, land. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.